0: All right, gang, have a seat. Make yourself comfortable. If you brought a Bible, take it and open it to 1 Timothy chapter 6, all right? Latter half of your New Testament. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, The idea for this message came about, I don't know, a month ago. I was in Savannah, and whenever we go to Savannah, I, I like to go by the golf store over there. Uh, Edwin Watts, and there's all the fancy golf clubs in there. I've played golf now for probably 25 years, and I I really enjoy the sport. Uh, Keeps an old guy like me kind of flexible, you know. Uh, A little bit of exercise, go out there and walk early in the morning maybe. Uh, but I like to go into the golf stores. I, in 25 years, I've owned one set of new clubs because golf clubs are ridiculously expensive if you've ever done the shopping, okay? Typically, I'll wait and buy something that's on closeout, maybe three or four years old, but it's, it's sat in a warehouse for that long and they dramatically cut the price. Or, or I'll buy something used and, uh, and work with those. Um, but golf clubs, especially when you walk into a store like Edwin Watts, are ridiculously expensive. I picked up a driver, a tailor-made twist-face driver. Now, if you've seen the advertisement, this is almost a blood guarantee to hit longer, straighter drives if you just buy the tailor-made twist-face driver. But the price tag on this thing was $499.95, $500 for one golf club. And right there in the middle of that store with people around me, I let out an audible moan like this. Oh. And I realized the guy next to me heard it and he walked away. And I realized the guy over here heard it and and he walked away. And at that moment, that sermon title came to my mind. We feel stuff. I mean, it's hard to believe that not a child, not an event, not a circumstance, but a golf club can produce a feeling, and emotion in me. Now, look, you may not be a golfer, and you're thinking that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. What about this picture right here? How's that make you feel? You bikers, you Honda riders, how's that make you feel? You Kawasaki owners, how's that Harley make you feel? That is a Harley fat boy. And if you are a motorcycle aficionado, you see something like that, and you feel something. Here, go to the next one. Ladies, how about that? Ooh, I actually heard a few of those. See? You feel something, don't you? Some of you are feeling envy right now. Wish my ring were that big. Wish I had the money to buy something like that for my wife. Here, look at the next one. Oh, let's pause for a moment. Let's just pause and take that in. Everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) Ah, that's the brand new Stingray. Isn't that awesome? I mean, isn't that stunning? That is beautiful. I mean, that's one of those things, one of those cars that you feel like if you owned it, you'd just be a better person, wouldn't you? I believe I'd be closer to God if I owned something like that, right? Some of you right now are not just feeling envy. You're feeling sadness because your old Chevy Impala can't quite keep up. With a Corvette. Some of you right now are depressed because you know you'll never own anything like that, right? See? That's a thing, that's a that's a stuff, that's a a a two-ton hunk of metal that has just created an emotion. Here's one more. This'll get a lot of you. Wow. Lakefront property. Wouldn't it be nice? I mean, look at the woodwork. Look at the style, look at the stonework. You imagine what a house like that costs? See? Some of you felt something when you saw that picture. Imagine, imagine if this stage were big enough and I could have that car sitting on this stage and at the magic moment, I could pull off the cover. Imagine the response from the crowd. Ooh, right? See, that's remarkable to me. I mean, think about that. We are followers of Jesus Christ and yet I see a motorcycle, I see a car, I see a house and I feel something. That's odd. It's almost like there's this little voice in the back of my head saying, it ought not be like that, Mike. Don't let anybody hear you do that moan sound, right? You're a minister for crying out loud, see? I could understand you feeling something when it comes to your child or your grandchild or the person you love, but not a thing, not an it, and yet we do. In fact, that's the point today. We feel stuff. We feel stuff. Two years ago, I went to Florida, and we stayed with some friends of mine, He said, I want to show you guys a house tomorrow. He said, it's one of the model homes in the development just down the road. I said, absolutely, sure. That'll be fun. He took us into a $2 million house. Now, i would never been into a $2 million house before. This place was amazing. This place had a whirlpool in the den in kind of the playroom with a tunnel you swam through to get to the swimming pool out under the lanai, Right? We found ourselves walking through this house making all kinds of noises. Wow, did you get a load of that outdoor kitchen? Did you see that entertainment center? This room had an in-home movie theater. I couldn't believe it. It was the most amazing home I've ever physically been inside. This house created emotion in my wife and me. Now, that emotion can be good or bad, right? Now, we've all been on the other side of it where it felt one way before you wrote the check and it felt a totally different way after you wrote the check. We call that buyer's remorse. You ever feel that? Listen, I have literally honestly said out loud in front of other people, What have I done? 20 years ago, 1998, we're just getting the church started. At that time, I made less than $15,000 as, pa- as the pastor of this church. My wife was a schoolteacher. She made less than twenty-five. dollars We didn't have any money, but we needed a new car. We looked at our budget. We came up with the number $7,000. We need to find a $7,000 used Jeep Cherokee. That's what we wanted. So my dad has a big-time car dealer friend in Florida, He was going to meet us in Orlando at the world's largest automobile auction. There are like 20-some lanes that go at one time, 20 different auctioneers. There are thousands of cars out there in the parking lot. It's dealers only, okay? So this dealer was going to take us. I told him my criteria. I want a late model Jeep Cherokee. We've got $7,000 to spend. Let's find one. We walked that lot for eight solid hours and couldn't find one. We couldn't find the right color. We couldn't find the right year. We found some Jeep Cherokees, but they were going to go for fourteen dollars and fifteen dollars and $16,000. We found none in that $7,000 price range we set for ourselves. So when the auction began and the cars started going through 20 lanes at a time, you had to keep track of your cars coming up at 2 o'clock in lane 3. That car's coming up at 3.30 in lane 4. We ran from lane to lane trying to buy these cars, and by 5 o'clock that evening, we had not bought a car. Now, listen, my dad drove us down there to meet the car dealer. He turned around and left, came back to Statesboro. We had no way home. Finally, the auction is almost over. Another kind of SUV came through. It's not the kind we wanted. In fact, it probably wouldn't have made the top five, but there it was. It wasn't the color we wanted. Probably wouldn't even have made the top five in color either. But it was going to hit our price range. He looked at me. He said, you can buy that car for your price range. Do you want it? I ran over there, kind of checked it out real quick. I said, okay, let's go. The car came through. Here goes the auctioneer. I mean, it was just going, it's wild. I couldn't understand a thing the man was saying. But every now and then, the car dealer, who knew what he was doing, he'd turn and look at me. And I'd go. And he would freeze. And he'd turn and look at me. And I went. I did that three times. He slammed down the gavel. He pointed to me and he said, sold, not for $7,000, for $12,000. I had almost doubled my budget. That lonely drive up I-95 was the most depressing three and a half hours I've ever spent in a car. The whole way back to Statesboro, I met her. I looked at my wife. She looked at me and we said, what have we done? It wasn't the kind we wanted. It didn't have the miles on it we wanted. It wasn't the color we wanted. And we almost doubled our budget. That's what money, resources, stuff, possessions can do to us, can create emotion. About, I don't know, three, four years after that, it was the week before Valentine's Day, and Amy and I were in Savannah. For those of you who remember, Savannah used to have a pet land, a pet store, It was right over there by Bed Bath & Beyond. Every time we went to Savannah, we had to go to Petland because you could see the puppies and you could play with the puppies. And and that particular evening, I took Amy into Petland and there was a St. Bernard in this store for sale. It was the most beautiful dog i had ever laid eyes on. Its eyes looked almost artificial. They were so bright. They were so clear. His color and markings were absolutely perfect. It was almost as if you had turned a stuffed animal, a perfect-looking stuffed animal, into a real dog. And this dog fell in love with Amy, and Amy fell in love with this dog. Only problem was, this was a $1,200 St. Bernard. (laughs) I never spent $1,200 on a dog. I never spent $200 on a dog at that time in my life. But when I saw how Amy loved it, and we walked next door to the shoe store, I came up with a reason to have to run back to the pet land. And when I did, I pulled out my credit card... I swiped it for the dog. I said, it's a secret. I'll be back next week. The following week, I told Amy, I've got a Valentine's Day plan. We're going to Savannah. Get ready. We drove to Savannah. And of course, after we went out to eat, we went to Petland. Here comes the dog. She said, oh, Michael, they've still got the St. Bernard. And I picked her up and I hugged her and I said, baby, it's yours. Happy Valentine's Day. And she cried and she was so excited. And I didn't care I was going to be paying for that dog for the next two years. But on the way home, she didn't seem to be as excited as I thought she should be. She didn't seem to be as, I don't know, happy about my purchase, my love gift, as I thought she should be. And I kept asking her and asking her and asking her. Finally, I pulled it out of her. You see, Valentine's Day is on February 14th. My birthday is five days later on February 19th. I said, Amy, what's wrong? You should be happier. She said, Michael, through someone I know at school whose sister lives in Richmond Hill. I just wrote an $800 check for an English Mastiff that I was going to give you for your birthday. I've got $2,000 worth of dog (laughs) making this much money between the two of us. They're both going to grow up to be 200 pounds apiece. You want to talk about buyer's remorse? See, The fact is, we can understand a child, a grandchild, a person, a relationship, even an event, even a pet, inspiring emotion in us, but what's up with a motorcycle creating feelings? And what's up with a boat or a jet ski creating feelings? I've got three questions, kind of kick this off. Here they are. Number one, why do I feel for stuff? What is it about me that feels for stuff? Question number two, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And question number three, what can I do about it? Well, b- fortunately, thank God, as is so often the case, the Bible addresses such issues. The Bible has an uncanny way, and if you've ever spent any time reading it, you realize that the Bible has the ability to reach beyond a culture, be- reach beyond an era, a time frame, and speak to relevant issues in relevant ways. And such is the case with our subject matter today from First Timothy chapter six. But in order for me to share this with you, and in order for it to benefit you in some way, you have to do this. You have to promise yourself that you're going to be honest. Because we tend to lie to ourselves, especially about money and resources. We tend to lie to ourselves, deceive ourselves when it comes to our checkbook balance or our bank statement. I have actually done marriage counseling, financial counseling with a couple in this church many years ago, And the husband's complaint was that God was against him because he considered himself good with money, and yet God kept throwing him one financial curveball, one unplanned expense after another. This man who saw himself as good with money, when we sat down and we started talking income and debt and disposable income and how many credit cards, I found out he had four credit cards. All four of them were close to maxed out, He was shopping for groceries on credit cards. He was paying for gas on credit cards. Did you know that the average American household with credit card debt, in other words, Americans who have credit cards and do not pay them off every month, has over $8,600 in credit card debt, $8,600. This man was the same. But he was lying to himself. The lies when it comes to money and finances and resource and stuff are typically far more prolific, far more blatant than any other lies we tell ourselves. So today I'm going to offer you some hope. But you've got to promise yourself you'll be honest. Okay, here's the rub. This is really the whole problem. This is the reason we have to address a subject like this in church. This is the reason Jesus had so much to say about money and possessions. Here it is. Our hearts are tied to possessions, and yet God wants our hearts. See, the reality of Mike being alive is that Mike's heart is tied to money and stuff. If you don't believe that your heart is tied to money, then I challenge you to put two to $5,000 in the stock market. What's going to happen? You're going to be downloading that app for your phone. You're going to be turning on CNBC or Fox Business News so that every morning you can watch that little symbol go by. And if it's a green arrow up, you're going to feel good. If it's a red arrow down, you're going to feel bad. Jesus said the reason that is so is because our hearts are tied to our possessions, our money, our resources. The rub occurs when then he turns around and says, but God wants your heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Again, The Bible has an uncanny way of addressing the subjects that really matter to us because they're relevant to us. And such is the case with 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look with me beginning in verse 6 of chapter 6. Paul is the aging apostle slash pastor slash missionary. And Timothy has become the pastor, the leader of one of the churches at Ephesus that Paul began on one of his missionary journeys And years later, Paul writes him these two letters to inspire and motivate and instruct and encourage young Timothy. And in closing the first letter, he deals with the subject today. Verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says. The word contentment there could be translated self-sufficiency, godliness. My eyes are focused on the right things in this life. Okay? I'm not only a horizontal thinker and problem solver, I'm a vertical thinker, a vertical prayer, a vertical problem solver. Okay, Godliness with contentment, with self-sufficiency, that is a good and powerful and strong thing. In Paul's day, first century Greece, the Stoic philosophers believed firmly in this. You see, Stoicism taught that you should be so mentally prepared that it doesn't matter when external circumstances change, you should be unmoved. You should be unflappable. Paul is playing off of that when he says godliness with contentment is of great gain. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Verse 8, but, we ha- but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. The basic necessities should make Christ's followers content. Now look, Nowhere in the passage, nor will I have anything negative to say about possessions today. Possessions, wealth building, this is not sinful before God. The real issue is when our affection for it becomes disproportionate to our affection for God. Paul says, let's get real. As a follower of Christ, if I have food and I have clothing, that should be enough because my heart isn't here in this world. It's there in the next. My heart isn't horizontal. My heart is vertical in its perspective on life. If we have food and clothing, that'll be enough. Verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. The word fall there from the Greek is an ongoing falling. It's, it's perpetual motion. It's, it's one struggle after the next because there's this unhealthy desire on the inside to live beyond our means, to get rich quick, to have more than we have now. Those who want to get rich continually fall into temptation, a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now that is the most perhaps off misquoted verse in all the Bible. The Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Once again, Loving my possessions, loving my money, loving my ability to earn and build wealth. That's not necessarily sinful in the eyes of God unless it is disproportional to my love for him, my love for God. Some of the wealthiest people in the Bible, men like Job, Abraham, David, Solomon, women like Esther. These were people who were not only wealthy by the world standards, they were also godly by biblical standards. The Bible doesn't have anything to say about the evils of money, per se. The Bible always warns against the love of money. Again, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, grief, many griefs. Do you know that the Bible teaches in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18 that the ability to produce wealth is actually a gift from God? Read it for yourself. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Do you know that the Bible teaches in the book of Chronicles that God has already preordained who would be rich and who would be poor? Did you know that? Did you know that if you are wealthy, it is because God has given you a gift, the ability to produce wealth? wealth. You say, well, I work hard. And yes, you do. And that's definitely part of the equation. But you need to understand by God's standards, if you have more than the next person, that is a gift from God, not the responsibility or not the result of your responsibility, your self-discipline or your work ethic. That all plays a part. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for hard work. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 in verse 18 teaches, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. The Bible has a lot to say about applying oneself, of carrying one's own load, of responsibility and self-discipline, and a work ethic. But you need to understand that when Paul's talking to wealthy people in the church at Ephesus, he's talking to people who've been gifted by God to grow and produce wealth. It's not money that's the evil, it's the love of it. Skip down. He closes the chapter and the book in verse 17 by the following, command those who are rich in this present world. Now stop for a moment because wealth is a very subjective idea in our culture. See, there's probably no one here who thinks themselves as wealthy We always look at someone with more and we say, well, they're rich, but I am not. When the Bible talks about wealth or riches, listen to me, this is very key. It's always talking about someone who simply has more than they need. See, the baseline, the standard of God's provision is I will clothe you, I will feed you, I will protect and care for you. Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and following. I will clothe you, I will feed you, I will care and protect you. Anything beyond that is a blessing from God. Anything beyond that, Paul would have considered wealthy. So by that standard, everyone in this room is biblically wealthy. Because we all have more than we need. Do you realize that worldwide, 70% of the world's population would think of you as wealthy? You realize that? Seven out of 10 people in this world, were they to come to your home, they'd see your garage and they would say, Wow, this person is so rich, they actually have a house for their car. Because seven out of 10 people in the world don't. Do you realize that 70% of the world, were they to come to your house, they'd look around your house, they'd say, Oh my goodness, these people are so wealthy, they have an extra room in their house just in case somebody wants to stay the night? Seven out of 10. Seven out of 10 people in the world, were they to come to your country, your community, your neighborhood, were they to live your life for a time? They would think, wow, these folks are wealthy. Because you know what they do? Every year for two weeks, they go somewhere even nicer than their house just for fun. See, 70% of the world don't know what a vacation is. By the biblical standard and the world's mark, Every one of us is rich. We're wealthy. So Paul, believe it or not, is talking to you in verse 17. He's talking to me. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides with us with everything for our enjoyment. Another evidence that ours is a good and loving, generous God. He gives you the extra because he wants you to enjoy it. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, think about that. I'm going to put the last phrase of verse 19 up on the, up on the screen again. Take hold of the life that is truly life life. That's the message that Paul wants us to receive. That's the message for those that are financially bound. That's the message for those who live with financial strain and pressure on their relationship. Do you know there are couples in our church who keep financial secrets from each other? Do you know that there are men who have credit cards their wife has no, has no knowledge of? Do you know there are wives that run to the mailbox to get the bill out before the husband can see it? You see, that's not the life that's truly life. Paul says, if you'll do what I'm telling you, you will take hold of the life that is truly life. This involves two things. Our eternal perspective, because God doesn't simply want us to think about the here and now. God wants us to think about eternity You see, this 80 years or so that I'll be around, all the stuff I'll pile up, it's going to wind up going to somebody else because I can't take it with me. And that 80 years is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity and reward. It also involves our immediate position. Like, now stop for a moment, get a snapshot of what's going on around you, because don't we all know someone with a lot more than we have, and yet they seem miserable? Don't we all know a couple that makes double what we make and yet their marriage is on the rocks? Don't we all, conversely, don't we all know someone with nothing who seems way happier than we are? Do you realize that every person that's ever gone to Kenya on one of our Kenyan mission trips comes back singing the same song? Mike, those people are so joyful and I can't figure it out. They have nothing. How can they be so happy when they have so little? Paul offered us in verses 17 and 18, three simple things, three steps. I love steps in the Bible because now I feel like I can see it. If I can try and do this, then I'm going to get what God has promised. If I want to take hold of the life that is truly life, number one, verse 17, I got to hope in God, not my wealth. I realize the tendency is to do the opposite. The more money I have, the more secure I feel, the greater my IRA, the stronger my financial portfolio the better off I think I'll be in retirement. I realize that the worse, the, the less I have, the smaller my bank account, the more vulnerable I feel. But Paul is teaching the exact opposite. Paul is teaching that it doesn't matter if you have a little or a lot. The hope is not in the wealth. The hope is in the God who's provided the wealth. That's number one. The natural tendency is to see it upside down. The Bible says this over and over again. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 4. Solomon wrote, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. You see, listen, church, whether you know it or not, the accumulation of more wealth will not solve your problems. Do you realize that the average American household believes they would be better off, even happier, if they made $8,000 more a year? Man, now connect the two dots. Average American family who has credit card debt, $8,600. Average American family believes I'd be happier if I could pay that off, if I could get that monkey off my back, if I made $8,000 more a year. The statistics, the research that's at our disposal, in one hour this afternoon, you could cover yourself up with websites like Forbes and Money Magazine and the Wall Street Journal and financial peace, all of these places, they make it one thing loud and clear. If you're miserable making $25,000 a year, you'd be miserable if you made $125,000 a year. And if you are content making $25,000 a year, likely you will be content when you make $125,000 a year. Do you realize that statistically, and the research bears this out, again, look it up for yourself, People who make over $75,000 a year are on average more dissatisfied with their income than people who make less than $75,000 a year. In other words, just because you make more money doesn't mean you're going to be more satisfied or content. Did you also know that statistically, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide spikes among the wealthy making more than $100,000 a year at a far greater, higher uh, rate than it does among the rest of uh, culture, the rest of society making less than $100,000 a year. Just because you made more money does not guarantee you will be happier. Real, real life, real life, relief from financial bondage that begins when we decide on purpose that our hope is in God, not our wealth. Here's number two. It comes from verse 18. You got to commit yourself to good deeds. You see verse 18, do good, Paul writes, do good and be rich in good deeds. You know how the message renders this verse? Go after God and do good. I like that. I wonder how many marriage problems would go away if we woke up and said, today my goal is to go after God and do some good in the world. I wonder how much discontentment would go away. I wonder how much more satisfied we could be with our lives if the driving force for us was to go after God and do good. Look, let me ask you a question. Which is greater in you, your desire to accumulate wealth or your desire to go after God? Man, that's a telling question, right? Man, that's getting personal. That's getting all up in your business, right? Which is greater, your desire to go after God or your desire to accumulate wealth? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1. The Bible says a good name is more desirable than great riches. I don't think we live by that priority in the United States of America. He goes on. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Do you know when we take hold of the life that's truly life? When we decide that our life is simple my goal is not to get rich. My goal is to go after God and do good. And then finally, number three, from the latter part of verse 18, adopt an attitude of generosity. Did you see that? I mean, it's right there in black and white. Be generous and willing to share. Now remember, Paul's talking to everybody in that church who has more than they need, okay? Not that subjective idea of the rich or the wealthy among us. Because all of us can exclude ourselves from that club easily. But if you have more than you need, Paul says, be generous. Have an attitude that is generous. Adopt generosity as your action. Ask yourself, would other people call you generous? Do you see yourself as generous? In our contemporary vernacular, we would say, don't cling to your stuff so tightly that you couldn't give it away or that it would hurt to let it go. You see, because money can create emotion, because money and possessions and stuff can create a feeling in me, it can easily become a form of do-it-yourself idolatry, believe it or not. You see, we can go to work Monday to Saturday worshiping the God of wealth, worshiping the God of income and then come to Sunday and try to shift that focus and worship God. Listen, gang, that doesn't fly. Jesus warned in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, be on your guard against all subtle forms of greed, and there are many. Now, he didn't tell us to watch out for the greed of others. He told us to watch out for greed in ourselves. Why? Because he knows how we're wired. He knows that Mike makes audible moans when holding a $500 golf club in Savannah. Oh, he knows how I am. So he says, be on your guard, Mike. See, it's always been difficult for me to understand my own conscience. Why am I like this? See, here's what I tend to do. Maybe you do this as well. I generally compare up financially, but down morally. See, that's like my MO. That's the natural way to look at those two areas in life around me. I compare up financially. How many times have you ever gone to someone's home, little dinner party, a little get together, and on your way home, the whole way home, you and your wife talk about, man, did you see that outdoor kitchen? Man, did you see that swimming pool? Man, did you get a load of that master bedroom and bath? What are you doing? You're comparing your life up financially to someone else's. Man, I'd like to live in a house like that someday. Man, I'd like to drive a car like that someday. You see, we typically don't do the opposite. I don't drive through the poorer part of our community and say, man, I am so thankful to live in the house I live in. These poor people look like they have nothing. I don't do that. Do you? I don't drive through poor neighborhoods and say, man, I feel so grateful to God for all I've been given. Man, see, that would be comparing down financially, and I generally don't do that. I generally go up. But then, flip it. I compare up, or excuse me, up financially, but down morally. Hey, let me tell you something about her. <laughs> hey, hey, listen, I could tell you some stories about that marriage. <laughs> you know, nobody's perfect. <laughs> I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not on my third marriage. Right? What are we doing? We're comparing down morally, up financially, down morally. We don't compare ourselves to Mother Teresa. Man, I got a long way to go. Man, I got to work at this. We don't compare ourselves to Paul or Peter or John or Ruth or Esther or Jesus. Why? Because it's easier. It's part of my wiring. Something in me is wired exactly backwards. I'd rather envy you for your possessions, compare myself up financially, and look down on you morally because I want to feel superior. That's in me. That's part of me. Something is wired exactly backwards. That's why God gives us passages like this one. See? Like this one. Here's the problem once again. Our hearts are tied to our possessions, but God wants our heart. That's the problem. What am I supposed to do about that? Well, I just told you. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Number one, hope in God. Number two, commit to good deeds. Number three, be generous. Let me ask you something. Right now where you sit, do you hope in God or your checkbook? Right now where you sit, are you dedicated to good deeds or is it all for your enjoyment? And right now where you sit, do you project an attitude of generosity or do other people think you love your stuff? Now, I've taught you this little trick before. Works for me. I want to reaffirm it in your mind. Let me show you those same pictures I showed you earlier. See that? Now, say this with me. I could own that. I choose not to. Go ahead, say it with me. I could own that. I choose not to. One more time. Like you mean it. I could own that. I choose not to. Instead, I choose to hope in God. Instead, I choose to go after God and do good in the world. Instead, I choose to be generous with my stuff. Here's another one. Okay, I could own that. I choose not to. Come on with me. I could own that. I choose not to. Here's the third option. Okay, wait. All right, here we go. Ready? Hang on. All right, here we go. Ready? I could own that. I choose not to. And finally, look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Say it with me. I could own that. I choose not to. Doesn't that feel good? Let me tell you something. What you just did is contributing to the treasures you're storing up in heaven. Were I to go to your office and dig through your personnel file, I'd learn a lot about your work ethic. Were I to go to a dentist's office or a doctor's office and dig through your medical records, I'd learn a lot about your health. If I went home and dug through your journal, your personal private diary, I'd learn a lot about your personal life. Let me tell you something. If I went and dug through your bank account, your bank statement, or your checkbook register, I'd learn a lot about your spiritual life. The Bible always connects spiritual walk with love for money, resources, and stuff. My encouragement today is to keep it simple. God says, man, trust me, not your money. God says, come after me, come after me hard and do good in the world. And God says, be generous, be generous. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you make it very clear. This is one of those non-debatable subjects in the scripture. Father, the reason you gave us the tithe was to remind us that when you bless us financially, we should first carve off a prioritized percentage of that gift and give it back to you. God, I thank you that you are so clear because (laughs) there's something in me that's wired exactly backwards. So, Father, help us as we strive to hold on to the life that is truly life. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Make it a fantastic week. I'll see you next time.